Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Double Disillusionists with extra disillusionment this week, Andrew P Street. Hello. Hello. I've, I've got buckets of disillusion. Buckets. Sitting here in, in my study. There's Physical buckets. There's, there's vats of the things. Have you got a study? Oh, stoppers. I, I do have a study. Elite. Although, um, elite. It, it's, I know. I'm totally elite. Part although of it, the will, elite. it will eventually be a, be a room that a small human will, will probably take over and my, my study will be the, the, the proud nation of Australia itself and, and its parks probably. Just been thinking, and, Andrew, that the people who spend a lot of time calling people out for being members of the elite are probably a lot richer than those of us who they consider the elite. Anyway. Um, that Andrew, seems to be uh, very much the case, but yes. Speaking of that, but before we get into this special um, Donald Trump, so now what? edition of our podcast, our special US version, we should plug an upcoming event uh, where essentially we want you to give us money, not very much money really, no, to come and hear this really. live on stage. It's the 24th of November, Thursday night at Giant Dwarf, tickets through giantdwarf.com.au. And Andrew, what an eminent panel we have. Besides ourselves, we have Jacqueline Maley of Fairfax, who is fabulous. She is fabulous, and she has been a, a guest not once but twice on uh, on this very podcast, and both times has has shone like the supernova of good spirited knowledge that she is. And secondly, uh, the it guy of hashtag Ospol. We've never been able to get him for the podcast. He was too busy during the campaign because he was also writing a book like your good self, Mark Stefano of BuzzFeed. They're going to be on stage, and of course, given what's happened. The conversation isn't just going to be about matters in Australia. It's going to be about Trump, what it means, and the whole um, assertion that seems to be going on. And Tony Abbott seems to have popped up once more from 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 <laughs> Forestville in order to to claim that in some way what just happened in the states somehow vindicates his time as prime minister. And in particular, Andrew, the idea that polls are rubbish, which I suppose is a comforting thought for a prime minister who did very very badly in them for a very long time. It, it is very comforting if you're Tony Abbott, although one, one important thing which, which has to be remembered whenever the, the assertion that polls are rubbish is, is thrown around, which it, it is very often. Uh, it certainly was thrown around in the wake of Brexit. It's been thrown around in the wake of Trump's victory. Uh, one thing which everybody tends not to mention is that the polls in Australia tend to be remarkably bang on. And I, I think a lot of that's because we have some handy quirks in our electoral system like compulsory voting. But the um, the news poll, if I remember correctly, uh, not just accurately predicted the election result, but accurately predicted all of the minor parties, including One Nation. Uh, essential wasn't far off. Uh, the None of the – I mean, all of the polls pretty much said it's going to be extremely close with a very, very narrow coalition victory. And indeed, that's what we got. So the the argument that polls are just some sort of uh, mad tool of the elite and have no bearing on reality is something that elite. Tony Abbott would want to believe, but Ooh. is not borne out by the evidence in, in Australia at any rate. Which, I would also contend, Andrew, that, that the um, Australian version of mass anger, people come with baseball bats for an incumbent um, centre-left government that's uh, not got a lot done and not done much to transform 
the economic reality for people. That was his original victory in 2013. <laughs> and that didn't last. Indeed. It lasted until his first budget where everyone kind of went, hang on a sec, this guy's not on our side after all. He actually wants to take money from us and give it to rich people. So it's entirely plausible that this will happen with Donald Trump very soon as well. And indeed, his early cabinet appointments seem to suggest this. So look, the, the Australian connection we will examine on stage, Andrew. What we want to do today is look at what happened last Wednesday, our time, why it happened, what it all meant. And Andrew, it'd be fair to say that in, in addressing this topic, we aren't the first really to to, to, to try and think through this, this, <laughs> this um, incident because I think this is the biggest surprise politically of my entire life. I can't think of a result that has been more jaw-droppingly extraordinary and indeed in light of the figures today that say that Hillary Clinton got the second most votes in a presidential election in history behind Barack Obama and admittedly because of population growth but still mm -hmm. somehow this person is not president um, it's quite extraordinary it is and fortunately there, there is a, a thriving cottage industry of think pieces uh, all explaining why uh, why Trump was victorious in, in spite of, you know, all of the evidence, all of the polling, the, the very laws of nature itself. And, um, and so you, you've kind of, I, I think as the, uh, uh, as kind of a misery pundit, you have so many options for oh. who's to blame. Uh, you've got racism, you've got sexism, you've got uh, the left generally, uh, you've got FBI director uh, James Comey. FBI Director James With Comey. Clinton's you, preferred option. You've got uh, the Clinton Foundation. You've got Russian hackers. You've got uh, the, the yes. very notion of democracy itself. You've got the um, one which I, I must admit I, I personally have a lot of sympathy for, uh, the exquisitely arcane uh, United States presidential voting system. And the fact that they have non-compulsory elections on a Tuesday, which more or less guarantees that if you're uh, the sort of person who perhaps doesn't have a contract or uh, doesn't have time off, then the thought of sort of not earning money for a bit to go out and wait for hours, depending on which state you're in, possibly not to vote at all. You know, like there's, there's a bunch of reasons why you can see democracy perhaps not... Uh, not being quite the kick-ass system of of, uh, of of representing a a vast and diverse nation such as the United States mm. as adequately as perhaps it could. And look, a lot of people in the aftermath of this have taken to the streets with with great anger, and I very much enjoyed Dave Chappelle's uh, line on SNL that um, when black people look at uh, the riots that have happened in places like Seattle. They really think amateurs. You don't know how to do a right. But look, there's a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, I guess, disbelief. And one thing that polling usually does is cushion people's expectations about what's going to happen. And for this to so dramatically be wrong and more wrong than than, than Brexit was. I mean, the the, the renowned five thirty eight had the the odds of a Clinton victory at about seventy four percent on the morning of the election day. Yes. Um. And for that to be so thoroughly out, flummoxed everybody, not least to say Trump, who it, it appears um, had essentially not really bothered much with this whole let's prepare a transition thing, both through superstition and through um, <laughs> lack of focus. 
And essentially, I, I think he didn't believe he was going to win, but he has. So he's essentially going to smash up much of what, uh, I guess, both the centre and the left hold dear. But the thing that, that really gets me, Andrew, the thing, the thing that I keep just wondering is why did not one of the hundreds of things that seem to render him completely unelectable do that? What are people seeing that I'm missing? I mean, I look, I completely understand um, many of the Republican votes that I've seen before. I understand Reagan. I understand both Bushes getting elected. I certainly understand why many people voted for Mitt Romney or McCain or any of these things. But this is a guy who seems so thoroughly wrong for the job that if you were part of a group reviewing someone's you know, job application, looking over some CVs, you'd look at it and just be kind of like, wow, that's a bit audacious. What am I missing? Well, there's a, there's a theory that I've been kind of kicking around and, and which I think applies to, to Tony Abbott and one of the reasons why I, I think it's, it would be wise not to rule out uh, sort of further support for One Nation as well. And it's the idea that Trump didn't have any policies, didn't have any ideas, didn't have any clear sort of path. Are you still there? Yeah. Oh, good, good. Sorry, I just thought, heard something go click and thought that... No, 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 so didn't, didn't have any policies, didn't have any ideas. But the but what he did have was a narrative, and the narrative was that things, things are broken and we can fix it and it'll all be good. The fact that he actively avoided detail... I mean, we've talked about this on, uh, on, on the podcast before, about how one of potentially the advantages that that Turnbull had was just he didn't reveal a lot of policy during the election. Stick to the which, plan, plan details, not forthcoming until after the... Precisely. And I, and I think that there's there's actually a lot of strength in that, this idea that, that every time Hillary Clinton was asked, you know, a question like, well, what do we need to do about ISIS? She would rattle off a bunch of stuff that was, you know, about diplomacy and about uh, working with other countries and in, in sort of... The, the the necessity to consult with allies about military strategy and blah 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 blah. Whereas Trump would just say, "Well, we we'll, we'll just stop them. We'll just stop them. They'll be stopped. We're, I've got a plan. I've got a great plan." I'm not going to tell you how. Don't want to tip them off. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is that people, are, I've become increasingly convinced that people aren't super interested in in policy. What they want is solutions. And so if you can say to them. Oh, I've got a solution, and you don't have to worry about it. And it's like, well, job done. I'm not saying that's true of everybody, and I, and I don't. I, I'm also not trying to, to suggest that people who do want that are doing that because you know they're lazy or they're stupid. It's like, well, that's the job of government. Governments, government is there to run stuff, and if somebody says that they can run stuff, then you know that's definitely a step in the right direction, rather than saying something complicated like, oh, well, we need to consult with everybody. I mean, who wants to hear that? In Trump's defence, you know, he has been hugely successful at at doing that. And, and part of my feeling about this is that Trump is America's unfettered id in a way. He's the sort of person that so many of them have told they're supposed to aspire to be, both the sexual exploits, the gold-tinted um, everything the, all, all the ostentatious bragging about his wealth. This is this has been held up even <laughs> by The Apprentice um, as the pinnacle of existence. And so, someone like that, you would assume, would um, would actually be able to engage. But what you just said, Andrew, about people not necessarily wanting to 
to delve into policy detail is, I'm sure, true. But I think it even goes further than that. I, I think it even is the number of things that people must choose to care about in terms of whether there's, here's a problem, here's a solution to it. It must be very small. And uh, people like you and me who actually, for some reason, have been fated by accident of birth and genetics or whatever to care about this stuff. <laughs> I think, I think in many respects, we're missing out just how, we're, we're not perceiving just how little people care about the specific details of specific policies. If mm. Trump projects confidence and charisma and success, maybe that's all he needs to do. And maybe, in fact, what, what a lot of people vote on is very, very little. And so they just go, oh, yeah, Rudd seems all right. Oh, yeah, Tony's all right. I know, Tony, he, he'd probably do a good job. John Howard seems competent. And that's that's as far as it goes. Yeah. Look, I, I think that's that's incredibly accurate. And and I think that it is, I mean, that, that is really what Tony Abbott brought to the table. I mean, as, as we... As we learned, he didn't have a lot of great ideas, and the great ideas that he had were different to the ones that he mentioned before he got the job. But what he what he did have was the the reassurance that the instability and the discord mm. and the sort of lunging from disaster to disaster that had happened under Labor with both Gillard and Rudd were going to end because he was going to fix it because he was a, a strong and, and capable leader, and that I think is a huge amount of the the Trump, uh, the the Trump appeal. It, it put me in mind actually. I, I just read this on somebody on a friend's uh, Facebook wall of the American satirist H. L. Mencken, who was writing in sort of the beginning of the twentieth century, and who has been shared more often in the last week than I think I've seen him in the previous twenty years. God, you're part of the elite, Andrew Paystreet. We've got to drain your swamp immediately. <laughs> but there's a beautiful quote of his which. Um, which I remember reading when I was about 15, and it tickled me then and tickles me now, which is, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. And I think that that's, <laughs> that, that's politics in a nutshell at the moment. People want solutions. Whether or not they work or not is almost beside the point, or at least it's beside the point until they get into office. Yeah, and look, maybe as well, the, the twin issues that he focused on, which are both related to globalisation, maybe they dwarf any other issue for people. We saw it with um, Brexit as well. It's this, um, the idea that, that globalisation means open borders and free movement of people across them and, uh, and free trade. And mm. these, these two things that have been portrayed as so good for so long by essentially everyone else in the Republican Party, um, maybe people simply care so much about those issues and are so deeply worried about their jobs and feel the unfairness of, I'm going to say illegal immigration, because I think that's a lot of what is here. And I think people are, the word racist gets bandied around quite a lot and, and accurately so if you look at um, Trump's new strategy director, mm. Stephen Bannon of Breitbart. But I think, and I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of Australia, and I, I think what gets people here is not so much migration as the idea of queue jumping, the idea of people cheating the system somehow. And we know that amongst those who are most outraged about this are people who are uh, migrants themselves. And the idea we had to go through this whole system and so why are these people skipping it? And so I imagine you project that onto the millions and millions of illegal migrants within the states. And that same sense of outrage is there that perhaps people in the bubble of um, 
the inner city, perhaps who have jobs and have never had to worry about work, maybe people do see the wages being undercut. And that's the other difference with Australia is we have a minimum wage which is fairly sacrosanct to a large degree. And there's because we're an island, there's not a lot of people who are here that aren't supposed to be here. And so you don't get um, people coming from south of the border and, and essentially undercutting you massively. You don't get people coming from Poland and working for three pounds an hour, which one of my mm. friends told me last week happened when he was living there. He was working for eight quid an hour, but the Poles would come in and work for three pounds an hour. And so that v- visceral, um, those two issues are so fundamental to people about about jobs and fairness and and money that maybe nothing else matters to people. Well, it's interesting. The, the, the things that that have already, I mean, you know, he's he's not in the job for another, what, three months, two months? and um, Turn a bit, yeah. And, and the things that have already kind of been either pushed aside or at least watered down are, you know, he, he was going to, to repeal Obamacare. That looks like that's probably not happening. There's There have been reports this afternoon that um, he's dismissed any idea of repealing Obamacare. Uh, gay marriage in the US is saying it's been settled by the Supreme Court, it's constitutional, that's the end of the matter. Yes, unlike Roe v. Wade, which he said is <laughs> definitely up for discussion, despite being settled by the Supreme Court repeatedly. But oh, this, is, this is out of the whole thing that we don't know what he's going to do. We actually, you can't really pick how moderate he's going to be on a lot of issues, and that's something that should be very reassuring to some of those who are troubled by his arrival. Who knows what he will choose to care about? Well, I think one of the big dangers is... is with Trump, <laughs> we, I can't believe I'm saying this. I think one of the, the weird dangers with Trump might be that if he gets removed, which is not outside the realms of possibility, he's not part of the Republican machine to the degree that you know a, a regular presidential candidate has been. And the possibility of him fighting with his own Congress, particularly if he's if he's cool with things like Obamacare and. Uh, national marriage equality which are they they Mm. might not be issues for him necessarily but they're they're articles of faith for a a fairly large swathe of of the republican party i think that could put put him in danger at being removed by his own party i mean you know pence is much more a a company man in that sense certainly is i think the elements of obamacare that he wants to keep which are if i recall uh the pre-existing condition thing and um, people being on their, their parents' plan until they're in their mid-20s. I think those are things that are already popular within the Republican caucus more broadly. But, look, it's it's a fair point. He, he is not part of the machine. He fought the machine on, on many occasions and, and beat, he beat raged against mission. it, if you will. He, he did rage against the machine. And it's far from clear how that relationship is going to play out, but I, I suspect Ryan's not going to be the speaker. So it's a kind of a weird dichotomy because part of me is not that worried about what he's going to do in some areas where I think he may not care or he may be surprisingly moderate because he doesn't have to pretend anymore. He can simply do what he wants to do. Mm. But I'm very confident that in areas like chasing illegal immigrants and all that sort of stuff, he is going to be pretty extreme. And and as you say, the rest of his team, who knows what they'll do. But I think the guy knows how to deliver for customers in, in the sense that he's a guy that runs hotels and whatever, like he, he knows a bit about customer satisfaction. It doesn't change the fact that the way he got there was utterly disgraceful and should never have happened. The The things that he did during the campaign were so 
appalling on so mm. many occasions. The rhetoric that was used, the the shameful demonization of so many people, it can't be okay and it can't be made retrospectively okay, even by him doing a great job, I think. Well, there's, I mean, there's one other thing which I think a lot of people are watching with, with a degree of schadenfreude, my, myself among them, which is that this is his problem now. I mean, the fact that he he divided the country so gleefully in order to uh, in in order to win. It's now. I mean, it's one thing to win; it's quite another to govern. And I don't know how you can unite the people of America again after spending the last mm. eighteen months telling them that there is a culture war, that there is a, you know, the, the elites are, are coming, that the government, I mean, I mean, you know, he's been basically saying the government is the problem and now he's the government. So it, it's going to be hugely problematic. So true. And, it, and he's stacking his government with insiders. Like imagine getting someone from Goldman Sachs to run Treasury, <laughs> which is what's being proposed. What the hell? Like how many times can people fall for the same bullshit? Well, there is one one thing which uh, actually there's an article on Cracked, which I, I really recommend. Uh, if memory serves, it's called "How Half of America Lost Its Fucking Mind," and it's written by David Wong, um, who's an exquisitely good writer. And Although it sounds ethnic, so you know, I don't think he's got a place in Trump's America. Well, his name, his actual name is Jason Pargin, so the, which, which also sounds pretty ethnic. Well, one point which he makes is that. And again, this this kind of feeds into the idea of that 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 Trump had a story, that Trump had a narrative, which is that pop culture generally, and American pop culture specifically, is so heavily invested in the idea of the outsider underdog who overthrows the corrupt regime. I mean, you know, I mean that's Star Wars for a start. Yeah, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and the yeah. whole thing. It's it's the Hunger Games. It's it's. Uh, it's the classic trope of one individual. One individual, normally from, from I mean, certainly in in it, well, in the case of Mr. Smith, and in the case of Hunger Games, in the case of Star Wars, one individual specifically from bumfuck nowhere backwater in a in a rural remote setting, uh, whose whose honesty and uh, you know ability to to see through the. The, the cynical lies of the of the elites and the cynical lies of, of the, the powers that be and manages to rise up against all odds and and triumph. So are you telling me Trump is Harry Potter rather than Voldemort? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's the story that we're told. We're, we're never told the story of, you know, the competent person who did a perfectly <laughs> reasonable job. I mean, that's just, you know, narratively, that's not exciting. Yeah, yeah. The, the competent person with the good CV who... They spent their whole life building up to doing a role. Is completely going to be able to handle it, although not very excitingly or transformatively. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> it is. It's just the special outsider. It's absolutely true, and that is what Trump uh, has done in this election. He's essentially constantly trusted his gut, ignored everyone else, sacked people who disagree with him. If they weren't related to him, they had no loyalty from Trump, and it's worked. It's paid off brilliantly. He's a little engine that could. Um, <laughs> Except the little engine had better hair. Yeah. When Australian 
Australians put their faith in Tony Abbott as this great transform, you know, the adults are back in charge. That was a debacle. I mean, even in terms of competently achieving his own agenda, even if with the best wish in the world he wanted him to succeed, even the IPA were devastatingly disappointed by Tony Abbott's time as Prime Minister. Do you think Trump will will do a better job? I suspect he will, actually. See, I, my feeling on, on the, the Trump era is one of those ones where I think it's probably going to be short. Wasn't he facing court in November? It's not going to be as immediate immediately explosive as as we think in fact um, at one point which a couple of people have made in various in uh, you know some of the billions of think pieces that have come out is that the chances of a you know nuclear war with russia are probably much much lower now than they would have been had um, had clinton gotten into into power and yeah that's fair china maybe the other way around the, the idea of a, of a of a nuclear war was was not entirely off the off the, the the table in 2016. It's a horrifying idea. So the idea that maybe you know if there's a plus side, it's that. Thanks, but the Donald. other thing is, I, I think that there's going to be. It's not going to be the stuff that happens in the next four years. It's going to be the stuff the the the, the, the kind of run on effects. It's going to be you know the the Supreme Court nominations that are made, and it's going to be the. Uh, the effect on climate change and stuff like that. It's going to be the, the, the things that either stop happening or are deliberately sort of uh, prevented that are then going to have sort of catastrophic effects mm. down the track. Yeah, climate change certainly is truly terrifying. The amount of coal that he's planning to dig out of the ground is enough to basically undermine the rest of the world's chances, I think, of managing to, to get things under control as we just managed to try and agree on in Paris. Mm, well, and uh, I mean, the uh, I've forgotten the name of the chap that he's tapped to head up the EPA, but I mean, he's, you know, one of the U- US's most prominent climate deniers. I mean, that's that's not a person that you want. So, somebody who has no time for science and no time for environmental protection is not something that you necessarily want running the environmental protection agency. See, again, Tony Abbott did it first with Morris, uh, Morris Newman. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And um, Myron Ebel, by the way, is the name of the the guy. <laughs> I just checked. And while they're, you know, again, that these things can be turned around. Like those kind of appointments can be turned around fairly quickly. But it's the, you know, it's the amount of time it takes to kind of change the, the direction of the ship that is the problem. Particularly with stuff like climate change, where we just don't have the time mm. to spend another ten years seeing global emissions spike and then start trying to do something about them it's it's that sort of stuff that i think is going to be catastrophic and that would happen regardless of of which republican got into the white house and if if trump is removed maybe you know i don't it's not like pence is going to suddenly turn around okay except that there are so many weird dynamics to this situation because uh given that every possible irony seems to be on the verge of coming true Trump seemed really taken by Obama, which is just so weird yeah. after what happened. <laughs> and and don't forget, this is Obama who's going to live three kilometres away from the White House, who has already apparently committed himself to extra tuition sessions because apparently for the United States to continue existing, you've got to do a huge amount of work during this period now of explaining to the president-elect how things work and how the security briefing works. And in a couple of days' time, he's going to get told all the really scary stuff that no one one else finds out. And 
it's possible that they'll strike up a rapport and that that might have some sort of an influence, which is the most unlikely thing imaginable, except that it's actually not. Because what <laughs> Trump responds to is flattery and celebrity. Mm. And Obama <laughs> is smart true. enough to actually, I mean, he said, we're rooting for you, Donald. We want you to be a success. And if he can say to him, look, <clears throat> I think you'd be a total, and look, put it this way. One of the things that he said that's really interesting is that the deal he wants to make is to solve the Arab-Israeli crisis because that's the most persistent problem in, in world politics. Do you think he thought of that himself? Or might that be, I could imagine that someone like an Obama kind of going, Donald, now look, you wrote the art of the deal. He didn't. Um, yeah. Here's what you can do. I, I don't know. This might seem far-fetched. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I could imagine Obama as a way of safeguarding his extremely endangered legacy, somehow cultivating Trump and just hanging out. It would be, it would be insane given that he's the captain of birtherism, but Trump is so erratic and so flatterable that you can imagine Obama one tweet saying, I really like Donald Trump's initiative to do whatever, and he'd bask. I mean, if Putin yeah. did it, surely Obama can do it. Oh, 100%. That, that's, I, I mean, it would be the, you know, the, the political equivalent of one of those photos of like, you know, a, a, a tiger whose best friend is a pig. But the, yeah. the, the um, like, that, that precise example, the whole thing about the, the Arab-Israeli conflict, you, you just know that it was that what would have happened is Obama would have presented it kind of as a well I mean you know obviously you're a smart guy you know that, that this is all all really down to the uh, Arab Arab Israeli this is the ultimate challenge I couldn't do it Clinton couldn't do it and uh, and he'll be like oh well, yeah yeah obviously yeah yeah that's, that's, he didn't that's know the there was an Arab Israeli conflict a week ago come on <laughs> he thought Arab Israeli was a dude He's just this one guy it's We're in a very it, it weird is, place. <laughs> It's going to be so strange. It's certainly the most entertaining of the two outcomes. It's the satirist's choice. It is, and and I mean, we'll, and we'll we'll talk about this on stage at Giant Dwarf very shortly. But the um, you know, I, I think that there are some huge lessons. Some, in fact, I'll go further and say huge lessons for Australia to to take from from what's happened. Can you give us a bigly uh, overview of them? <laughs> Look, I, I think the big one is, I mean, this is going to sound horribly pious, but I, I think it, this is thrown into really sharp relief exactly where the left in, in, in the amorphous floating sense of a progressive movement, which I realize has thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of different subgroups and moving parts and, and individuals. And certainly it's a, it's, a, it's a thing which I would consider myself to be a part of. But I think it just shows where the left has completely dropped the ball and and where we need to do so much better a job at taking people along with us because the more that we leave the the narrative to charismatic despots, we can't compete with that. We're, so Well, this is what the left always does. I mean, the left always yep. talks for the workers instead of to the workers. Exactly. And, and, and actually listens to what they want. And uh, this is the thing, uh, particularly in the UK where, where Jeremy Corbyn has, has made an absolute art of, um, you know, ideological purity and unelectability. You <laughs> you have... He is the new Tony Benn. Oh, my gosh. Just, just 
what is what is the point of being there? And I and I keep coming back to I'm I'm not interested in, in as an individual in ideological purity. I'm not interested now in, in litigating what happened in the election. What I want to happen is for Donald Trump to be the best possible president and do the least damage. And anything within reason that can be done to make that happen should be done. I would love to see Obama swallowing his pride and doing what I've just suggested. I'd love mm. to see Hillary Clinton offering to help him out in any way that she can. It, it's that worrying. The attitude that people who voted for, say, Jill Stein in this last election, it gets you nowhere. There's, there's preaching to the choir is the most dangerous thing you can do when there's an election on. And it's so easy to do. And it's so constantly fails. And I think the best example of that, Andrew, actually, is when you think about the, the most important aspect of Bill Clinton's campaign, where James Carville wrote on the wall of the, of the headquarters, it's the economy, stupid. Mm. I don't think Hillary Clinton remembered that for one second of her campaign. And I think that's probably one of the major reasons why she's not in the White House, even after Bernie Sanders nearly beat her by focusing on exactly that. Well, I think sort of Clinton's... <laughs> oh, God, this is, this is going to sound so condescending, and I apologise in advance, listening audience. I think one of the, the big reasons why why Clinton failed was that she did, I mean, pr- well, precisely for that reason, which is that there wasn't a good cut-through message. But it, it again, it reminded me of Turnbull, where it was sort of saying, "Oh, I'm going to respect the intelligence of the uh, of the electorate and understand that that you know people can can deal with complex issues mm. and and you know difficult options and stuff like that." And no. It worked very well in the West Wing. It's not that people can't. It's that it's not people's job. It is the job of government to govern. And most of the time, unless you're a policy wonk like ourselves, or to be fair, probably most of the people who listen to this, you, you don't care. You don't have the time to care. You've got a job to do. You've got a family to raise. You've got you know, bills need paying. Interesting things on television need watching. You're, and some you're people find this stuff to, boring. To get on Andrew, with your life, and they still get and, a vote. That's the thing. <laughs> and they should. It is completely reasonable to to take the line. I want the govern the government to get on with governing and leave me the hell alone. Like that. That's actually that, that's not an unreasonable proposition to say. I I want to be able to trust the government to do its goddamn job. Yeah, and that's—I I feel like like there are people like Turnbull and like Clinton who are so fascinated by the minutia and are so across the detail and are so you know are capable of holding these very 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 complex scenarios in their heads and seeing all the moving parts and seeing all the all the difficult bits it's and being privy. Privy to information that not the other people don't have, and being absolutely thrilled by it, and not realizing that most people do not give a shit, and that's that's where I think this this election and and Brexit and you know what we're seeing in in France, what we're seeing in the Philippines, we're we're seeing people are just not interested in 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 nuance and subtlety and detail. And complexity, people just want goddamn results. And the problem is that the people who offer goddamn results tend to have terrible ideas and plans that aren't going to work. So yeah, it's, 
Yeah, it seems to me that one thing, you know, this is, if we've now identified the problem, the next question is, and how do we fix that? I think what actually happens is that, that that's why the left and, and the, the Turnbulls as well get voted out. They're vulnerable to simple explanations and so on. And then what happens is that, the, as we saw with George W. Bush, that doesn't work out. So, so they get kicked out and the other people get put back in. What happens is that um, people constantly punish bad governments or governments mm. don't sufficiently deliver. And it, it's not hard to oppose Which that. Which is all and, of them, it turns out. <laughs> and, well, I, and that's the thing. I think people, Obama was genuinely popular and brought people into the tent who, who didn't normally vote. And that worked very, very well for him. But I think he was an exception. Um, and what we're seeing now is just another government getting punished for not doing a good enough job. Trump um, had the skills to to win the nomination and uh, has won the election. And, look, if he fails to deliver, which I suspect he will, he'll get kicked out next time around. Look, the bottom line is, as well, Andrew, and I, and I know this is terrible to think of, but there was part of me that really wanted to know what a Trump presidency would look like. And I think, in many respects, people of America have, have chosen the less boring option. <laughs> <laughs> and I suspect that a lot of Americans went into the polling booth and went, Donald Trump, wow, he's really famous. Let's give him a go. Mm. And here we are. <laughs> well, look, and, and, and I think in a way they're right. It is going to not be boring. It will be a lot of things, but boring is not going to be one of them. Unless you happen to um, have some sort of Arctic preserve, in which case, oh, my God, they're going to bore the crap out of it for oil. <laughs> That was a terrible pun. Yeah. All right, look, that's a good start to um, what I'm sure will be an ongoing discussion about what on earth happens from here. Come along to Giant Dwarf on Thursday, the 24th of November. We'll talk more about it with Mark Stefano and, and Jacqueline Maley of BuzzFeed and Fairfax. They're going to have some great opinions. It's going to be a lot of fun and uh, tickets are cheap. You can get them at giantdwarf.com.au. Thanks for bearing with us. What an extraordinary week. Andrew, I'll catch you uh, for the podcast and then on stage in a couple of weeks' time. You will. Don't forget you can subscribe on iTunes, any other podcasting device of your choice. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. 